Ukraine's president salutes a group of Ukrainian soldiers who've reached the Russian border northeast of the country's second largest city. It's Monday, May 16th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming out, the latest on the war in Ukraine and how Ukrainian children who fled the fighting are getting an education in neighboring Poland. This school is about support, is about love. This school is about just, you are not alone. Also this hour, the fatal mass shooting at a Buffalo, New York supermarket leaves neighbors scrambling to find food. This is the only store, grocery store around here. And he took that from us. He took that from us. And how abortion rights could upend the main governor's race. It's 401. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Family members who lost loved ones in the Buffalo mass shooting now under investigation as a racially motivated hate crime are in anguish and angry as new details about the alleged gunman suggest early warning signs might have been missed. Despite a previous threat against his high school and a subsequent psychiatric evaluation, this year the alleged gunman was able to purchase the firearm that authorities say was used in Saturday's shooting that claimed 10 lives. Garnell Whitfield Jr. lost his mother Ruth on Saturday. What I love most about my mom is how she loved us. How she loved that family unconditionally. How she sacrificed everything for us. At a news conference today, he and others wept as the attorney representing them called on officials to define Saturday's massacre as an act of domestic terrorism allegedly perpetrated by a self-described white supremacist. Day after the Buffalo massacre, there was another mass shooting at a Taiwanese church 3,000 miles away in California. Authorities say the suspect, identified as David Cho, was a Chinese immigrant motivated by hate for Taiwanese people. One person died five were injured. Buses and trams are running today in Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, for the first time since Russia's February 24th invasion. NPR's Jason Bobian reports far more people are on the streets as Russian forces have been driven from the outskirts of Kharkiv. Due to the rapidly improving security situation in the city, Kharkiv's mayor declared that he's restarting four light rail lines, eight trolley buses, and 25 bus routes. In the center of the city, Beznikov Valery, who is waiting at a bus stop, says the return of the buses is a beautiful sight. After weeks of getting pounded by Russian attacks, he says ordinary life is now able to resume in Kharkiv. Yeah, much, much safer, and I must say it actually feels good now here. Many of the buses and trams, however, were damaged by Russian shelling. Due to shortages of replacement glass, some of the vehicles are operating with plywood covering their windows. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Kharkiv. A senior defense official tells NPR today that Russian and Ukrainian forces continue to exchange artillery fire in the Donbass, calling it a real gunfight. The official added that Russia is not making any significant territorial gains. The airspace remains contested with a general weariness on the part of the Russians to fly into Ukrainian airspace and encounter Ukrainian air defenses. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 26 points at 32,223. The S&P was down 15 points 
And the NASDAQ was down 142 points. It's NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. The MBTA is out with its proposal for a newly designed bus network. The plan would double the amount of high-frequency service starting next year. Those are routes where buses come every 15 minutes or less. It would also add routes in Everett, Lynn, Medford, Somerville, South Boston, and West Roxbury, and it would increase the overall number of bus trips by 25%. The plan would require the T to come up with an additional $90 million in funding. The proposal will now go through public hearings. Schools across Brookline are closed today as hundreds of teachers are on strike. Teachers say they're fighting for higher pay, built-in prep time during school hours, and reforms to hire and retain more staff of color. Eric Schiff is a guidance counselor at Brookline High School and the chair of negotiations for the Brookline Educators Union. I think morale's great. I think we're all united to get something done and, and to make a point. And, um, you know, this isn't what anybody wants to do, and they're doing it. So that, that, that tells you how important it is. The school committee says students have become victims in the labor dispute and it's calling on the teachers union to call off the strike. Another negotiating session scheduled for about one hour from now. School leaders say they will announce by 6 a.m. whether there will be classes tomorrow. The city of Boston's welcoming an infusion of new recruits to the city's emergency medical services department. This year's EMT class for the city is the largest to graduate in a decade. More than 30 people are joining 911 ambulance and dispatch operations. City officials say many of the new EMTs were frontline workers throughout the pandemic. In sports, Red Sox start a three-game set at home against the Houston Astros tonight. Celtics are off. They'll start the Eastern Conference Finals tomorrow night against the Miami Heat. And in the forecast, partly to mostly cloudy this afternoon and overnight with strong thunderstorms moving through the area, those dropping to the upper 50s. Mostly sunny tomorrow. Highs should be in the mid-70s. Right now, 79 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Poland. At a school in Warsaw, seven and eight-year-olds are singing along to a tune that every Polish child knows. The kids touch their eyes, ears, mouth, and nose as they sing. It's the Polish version of Head, Shoulders, Knees, and Toes. These children are just starting to learn the language. They've only been in the country a month or two. All of them are refugees from Ukraine. This school is about support, is about love. This school is about just, you are not alone. Oksana Vakil is one of three principals here. When the war broke out and people began flooding into Poland, a group of Ukrainian educators used money from nonprofit organizations to open this school in just 24 days. It's in an unused college building. 300 teachers applied for 22 positions. 400 kids applied for 270 slots. All of them, teachers, staff, and kids, are refugees. The principals had to decide who to accept. We decided that we would take 
Firstly, children from the hottest point of Ukraine, like Mariupol, like Bucha, like Izum, uh, students who has no uh, possibilities to learn in Ukraine. Because if it's more safe place in Ukraine, they have got online lessons mm -hmm. with their teachers from Germany, Italy, from any part of the world. That means the students at the school are also among the most traumatized. Principal Vakil was trained as an art therapist. She opened a language school near Kyiv before the war, and she remembers the first day she taught a class here. I saw just uh, empty eyes, you know? I am a teacher for 20 years. I, I teach uh, my English through creative movement all the time, through art. So I got used to move, to, to see the reflection of bodies. And I didn't see the reflection of bodies. They were just sitting looking in one and this is the first grade when you see the first graders whose nature is to move to shake and not to freeze and you see that they are frozen they have no emotions and you try to do this material that's material and you see no reaction it's really scared as the weeks went by they began to open up they started to play and make friends. And now when we come, it's noise. Wow, it's noise. They are shouting, they are fighting. In the hallway between classes, kids run up to hug the principal. They range in age from 6 to 18. Art covers the walls. One of the kids has drawn a tree with the days of the week, and there are leaves and branches for Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but Thursday, instead of a leaf or a branch, there's a missile and it says the 24th of February and the missile is hitting the trunk of the tree and the tree is bleeding because February 24th is the day that Russia attacked Ukraine. Diana Norchuk is 15. That's a challenging time in anybody's life, but especially when you've been uprooted from everything that's familiar. She says it's a relief to be able to show up at this school and feel a bit like you're back home. We have just a little piece in Warsaw, a little piece of Ukraine, because here is people from my native city, from my native country that speak nat my native language. When you're at school, do you try to focus just on learning and studying and doing the work, or is there also an opportunity to think and talk about what everybody is going through in this difficult time? I try to uh, not focus on this theme because uh, every time when I come into Instagram or Telegram, I see the news with uh, what's wrong in the uh, Lviv, what's wrong in the Kiev, Kharkiv, and it's broke my heart. So uh, uh, I try to focus on the learning, studying. Not all of her distractions are related to war. First of all, I must have prom at this time, yes. You are determined to have a prom. Yes. Along with everything else she has to deal with, being a refugee means she might not get to have the prom she's always dreamed of. According to the UN, half the people who fled Ukraine are children. Poland has taken in more than a million Ukrainian kids. And they're not living in refugee camps, which is a good thing in many ways, but it means the kids are spread out all over the place. So providing education is more of a challenge. And so the Ukrainian kids in Poland are not all in special schools that were built for refugees. This is a Polish public school on the other side of Warsaw. It had a student body of 300, 
Then the war started, and the school added 100 Ukrainian kids. All the students here have special permission to use their phones for Google Translate. 14-year-old Masha Zamoro sits down with us in a classroom where the walls are lined with homemade posters of Ukrainian flags, and the desks have been painted yellow and blue for Ukraine. Sometimes, when I have break, I think about Ukraine. It's very hard. But then there is another lesson after that. That must be really difficult. Yeah, it's hard because if everything were normal, it would just be different. But now, with the war in Ukraine, I have to think about my home. Is it still standing or did a bomb fly through it? It's like roulette. She came to Poland with her parents, but her 28-year-old brother stayed behind. He's staying at home because he can't get any job now. And sometimes he goes to the shelter when there are sirens. When do you hope you will be able to see him again? I have no idea when I will see my brother, because when the war started, my mom just took me. But she was not able to take him, because he's an adult. So he just had to stay there. Men of military age aren't allowed to leave Ukraine. And so little kids struggle to understand why their father or their big brother isn't around. Ina Demchenko is the mother of a nine-year-old boy whose father is still in Kyiv. Oh, of course, I'm trying to create some stories because uh, he doesn't need uh, truth. But uh, I, I'll say tomorrow, in a few weeks, in a month, everything will be okay. And then we'll, you'll see your dad and you'll see your grannies and you'll see every, everybody, your friends. And for some time, of course, it helped. The longer he stays, uh, the, the less he thinks about uh, the situation. Is it helpful for him to talk to his dad, or does that just remind him of the distance and the separation? It depends, because sometimes, of course, he, he plays and f he forgets about everything. He uh, contacts, uh, contacts his father uh, and just uh, telling him about uh, his day. Uh, but uh, in a few hours, uh, when he goes to bed, of course, he remembers that uh, a few months ago he stayed with him and slept with him and uh, spend time with him. I was here two months ago and saw how welcoming Polish people were. And I wondered before I came back this time whether people would have started to lose patience. No, they don't lose. I really, I'm really surprised, but they don't. They really help even now, even I think, uh, I don't know for how long it will uh, continue, yeah, but, but I'm impressed. It doesn't seem like anybody is losing patience, but you can see the strain. Eva Dujinska is an English teacher at the Polish public school. It's a really big, big challenge, and they were not prepared for this. She says her classes are not too different since she always conducts them in English, but some of her colleagues who teach in Polish are struggling. It was like the when the pandemic started. We needed to, you know, go through that new era of edu online education, and we did it well. But it took some time for us to uh, to learn how it functions, everything. And now it's the same. I mean, nobody uh, predicted that. Nobody told us that it's going to be like that. 
nobody asks them if they want to do it. I mean, it's kind of like we were maybe not forced. It's not a good word, but uh, we don't have much choice. All across Poland, kids, parents and teachers are trying to adapt, struggling to stay flexible without knowing how long they'll have to keep this up. At the all-Ukrainian school, kids from California sent homemade cards to the refugee students. They hang on a string, and kids open them to see what's inside. There are rainbows, hearts, and one with a Ukrainian flag on the front and a short story written inside in a child's uneven scrawl. Once upon a time, there was a man, and that man went to a country and said, this country you live in is actually my country, and you will have to live with my rules. And what the people that live there said, no, we are brave, we believe in ourselves, and we are strong. But the man still wanted the country, and he tried to go to war, but then the people that lived there said, no, we are independent, we support each other, we are strong. And who won? Well, you'll have to figure that out by yourself. Tomorrow on the program, we'll talk to three Polish young adults about how this war has changed their generation. Those five days were the most intense uh, days in my life. After that, when I came back to Warsaw, I needed to reevaluate everything that I do in my life, actually. I have a corporate job, so now I just want to quit my job. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the mass shooting at a Buffalo, New York supermarket yesterday that's left neighbors scrambling to find food. WBUR supporters include Red's Best, networking local fishermen. Fish, sushi, and shellfish from the Boston Fish Pier delivered to your home or for local pickup. More at RedsBest.com. In business news, some Massachusetts business and higher ed leaders are joining a push to encourage the federal government to locate a new biomedical research agency in the state. The effort to land the new Advanced Research Projects Agency includes representatives from biotech companies, Suffolk Construction, and the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce. Congress approved a billion dollars to establish the agency in March to accelerate research for infectious and chronic diseases. On Wall Street today, stocks were mostly lower. The Dow was up 26 points. NASDAQ fell 142 points, more than 1%. And the S&P 500 dropped 15 points. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England with Zootopia, June 4th, a gala supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos to inspire caring and action for wildlife. More at zoonewengland.org. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com
Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. In the forecast, it'll be partly to mostly cloudy this evening with strong thunderstorms moving through and overnight lows down in the upper 50s. All sunshine tomorrow. Highs in the mid-70s. Right now, 79 degrees in Boston at 420. This is WBUR. The WBUR Gala Auction is live. Go behind the scenes at Zoo New England. Bid now at WBUR.org gala. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Emily Fang. Saturday's mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, happened at not just any grocery store. The Topps Market on the city's east side was a store Black residents had fought for years to get built. But it's now closed while investigators process the crime scene. NPR's Adrian Florido reports on what this means. Hours after Saturday's shooting, a reporter asked New York Governor Kathy Hochul where people who shopped at the Topps were going to get their groceries now. There's families that are still finding out that their loved one is not coming home to dinner tonight. People can get their groceries tomorrow. People who know the city's east side said it seemed the governor didn't realize the store's temporary closure was more than a minor inconvenience. We don't have much over here. You know, we don't have markets on every corner. You know what I'm saying? We have people that don't have cars. Therese Smith and her mother are longtime Topps customers. Her mom shops there every Saturday. Every Saturday. So when she learned of the shooting, Smith's first concern was, was her mom okay? Then it was figuring out how to rework her schedule to get her mother food until the store reopens. It's not going to be easy. We worrying about food and we worrying about if we're safe getting the food. The Topps Market on Jefferson Avenue is in the heart of Buffalo's Black East Side, and it's the only grocery store people who live here can walk to. I just said, oh my God, that's the only Topps we have? in the community. Della Miller is a food activist who helped convince Topps executives to build the store almost 20 years ago. Before then, she used to set up a produce stand nearby. Cases of greens and tomatoes and peppers, and we would actually sell them on the street. That was how desperate we were to get fresh produce. When the Topps opened in 2003, people were thrilled. You know, we have a Topps, we have a Topps. They were so happy, you know what I mean? Because that was extra dollars in their pocket not having to pay for transportation or getting on the bus. The store became an important hub, a place to meet for a fried fish dinner or to pick up a prescription. There's a bank inside. The weekend's racist attack did not only cut short 10 lives, it forced the community to answer a question that most richer, wider neighborhoods would never face after a similar attack. Now how do we eat? When there aren't food resources, how do people adapt? And what are the social networks and relationships that help them survive in times of crises? Samina Raja is a Buffalo urban planner, food researcher, and activist. In the last two days, it's those social networks, she said, that have been getting people through. People have mobilized. We have a farmer on the east side who's a black farmer. Uh, 
trying to figure out when she's going to do deliveries. Another person is trying to figure out where there will be cold storage. They have not slept. Tops is shuttling customers without cars to other stores. Ride-hailing companies are helping too. So are food banks. No community should have to scramble to find food like this, Raja says. But this, too, is what racism looks like. The community recognizes that there isn't going to be a response, and that's been the case for too long. They're not going to sit around and figure out who's going to come and bring food to them. Tops executives have promised the store on Jefferson Avenue will reopen. Jalen Jones, who was standing next to the crime scene tape around the parking lot, said he's glad about that. If you black and you grew up in around this neighborhood, you know what this Tops means to you. But shopping there, he said, won't ever be the same. He took that from us. He took that from us. It'll be a place to buy food because there is no other place. Because you have to. Not because you want to. Adrian Florido, NPR News, Buffalo, New York. Access to abortion is protected in the state of Maine, even if the U.S. Supreme Court strikes down Roe v. Wade. But Republicans, including former GOP Governor Paul LePage, are running strong campaigns trying to reclaim control of state government, an outcome that could put Maine's abortion protections at risk. The question is whether Democrats and abortion rights advocates can match Republican enthusiasm this November. Steve Mistler from Maine Public Radio reports. Demonstrations about the seemingly imminent demise of Roe versus Wade have intensified here ever since a draft of the court's opinion was publicized. At a recent protest in Portland, Maine, resident Heather Jameson worried the next generation might not have access to a procedure that has been legal for nearly 50 years. I'm worried for my daughters, I'm worried for their friends, I'm worried for my grandchildren. Banning abortion does not stop abortion. It only creates unsafe abortions. And abortion rights supporters have good cause for concern, says Nicole Clegg of Planned Parenthood of Northern New England. People are going to be harmed by what could potentially be happening here. Even though Maine has a 28-year-old law signed by a Republican governor that protects access to abortions, no matter what the Supreme Court decides, Clegg warned that it too could be overturned if an anti-abortion governor and legislature ascends to power in November. They're laws. They are subject to repeal. Elections matter. I pledge to the people of Maine, so long as I'm governor, access to abortion care will be safe and legal in Maine, just as it is now. We will not go backwards. Governor Janet Mills has positioned herself as a champion of abortion rights, like many Democratic legislative candidates facing elections this year. It might boost her re-election chances made uncertain by significant headwinds, including President Biden's low approval rating, voter concerns over inflation, and an enthusiasm gap with a motivated Republican base. Maine Republicans are also hoping the return of former Governor Paula Page, a conservative firebrand often described as a Donald Trump prototype, will energize support for its entire ticket of candidates. Here's LePage at the state convention last month. The choice in November is very clear. I stand for faith, freedom, and trusting the Maine people. LePage's campaign declined a request for an interview, but he recently released a statement reaffirming his, quote, proven history of supporting life, end quote. It also left the door open to changing Maine's abortion laws without specifically saying how. I think I can safely say we have obviously seen him as an ally on life and issues like that. Mike McClellan is a former Republican legislator who now works for the Christian Civic League of Maine. 
a group that is staunchly anti-abortion and influential in the Republican Party here. Our look is to the day that there's just no abortions at all in Maine, that they're not needed. Maine is one of the most secular states in the country, but the religious right here punches above its weight in numbers, with pew-to-polls activism and turnout. McClellan says anti-abortion candidates are winning elections, and as a result, Republican legislators are more unified in restricting abortion access than they were just a few years ago. And he anticipates a wide slate of anti-abortion bills if the GOP wins control of state government. All the polls suggest that even people that support abortion want limits to it. So far, Republican candidates here seem poised to rely on voters' complex abortion views and their own vague plans in a post-Roe world to ride out the backlash. Meanwhile, Democrats like Governor Mills are framing access to the procedure as fundamental to a woman's right to self-determination. This draft opinion declares that there's basically no right of privacy in the U.S. Constitution. That's extraordinary and extreme. It's an extremist view and it shouldn't be tolerated. And I won't tolerate it at the state level. Whether those concerns resonate with voters and help Mills win re-election this year is unclear. A recent poll taken before the release of the draft opinion showed her in a statistical dead heat with LePage. For NPR News, I'm Steve Missler in Augusta, Maine. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up just ahead on All Things Considered, fears that a tech bubble is about to burst or that the bursting has already begun with investors pulling back and more companies laying off workers. Also, the mass shooting in upstate New York leaves the alleged shooters community searching for answers. That's coming up. In the forecast, it'll be partly to mostly cloudy this afternoon and overnight with strong thunderstorms moving through in the next few hours. Lows dropping to the upper 50s right now, 78 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet, presenting Swan Lake, an iconic and beloved ballet, live May 26th through June 5th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek. CitysideSubaru.com. Americans really eat a weird set of foods. And some of those foods contribute to climate change. But our choices can make a difference. What we found with that one single substitution, it dropped that person's dietary carbon footprint by 48%. WBUR's new newsletter, Cooked, can help you help the planet from your kitchen table, whether you're omnivore, vegan, or somewhere in between. To sign up, go to WBUR.org cooked. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. As investigators continue to comb through the supermarket in Buffalo, New York, where a white 18-year-old man allegedly opened fire, killing 10 people, Officials are also considering the full charges Peyton Gendron will face. So far, he's been charged with one count of murder and has pleaded not guilty. Authorities say they are investigating the attack as a racially motivated hate crime. Meanwhile, at the White House today, President Biden awarded Medals of Valor to 15 public safety officers from eight different departments who've shown outstanding bravery and commitment to service. We're still gathering the facts. Well, already... The Justice Department has stated publicly that it is investigating the matter as a hate crime. 
racially motivated act of white supremacy and violent extremism. The economic costs are mounting in Ukraine as Russia's invasion nears the three-month mark. And Pierre's Anya Kamenets has more. According to the International Labor Organization, 30% of pre-conflict jobs have been lost, many by people forced to leave the country. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian government says at least $100 billion worth of infrastructure has been destroyed, half the country's businesses are closed, and Ukraine's government has spent more than $8 billion directly on the war, while tax revenue is also taking a dive. The United Nations Development Program says a prolonged conflict would push 90% of Ukrainians into or close to poverty. Anya Kamenets, NPR News, Kyiv. Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory, the Dow up 26 points, ending the day at 32,223. That's up a fraction. The Nasdaq was down 142 points at 11,662. That's down 1.2 percent. The S&P 500 down 15 points, ending down nearly four-tenths of a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Forty black and Latinx leaders from across Massachusetts are teaming up to address racial and ethnic disparities in health care, calling it the Health Equity Compact. WBUR's Chris Siderick has more. It's not a new problem, but Michael Curry, CEO of the Massachusetts League of Community Health Centers, told WBUR that right now there is real opportunity for action. We've never seen this moment in Massachusetts, never seen this much representation in the government sector and in the private nonprofit sector. We have to seize that opportunity. Curry says, like with Romney Care, making clear the human and financial costs of the current inequities will be key to moving the needle and bringing meaningful change. We got health reform in Massachusetts, became the model for the Affordable Care Act on a national level because we made the business case. Organizers say a crucial first step will be a study examining cost of care, and they hope to have that completed by early next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Chris Siderick. State gaming officials report the three casinos in Massachusetts generated about $99 million in gaming revenue last month. Encore Boston Harbor brought in nearly $64 million, a 27% increase from April of 2021. Revenue at MGM Springfield and Plain Ridge Park Casino was up about 3%. Planned Parenthood is consolidating its health centers in northern New England. Next month, the organization's closing four locations in Vermont and one in New Hampshire. Seven other health centers in the region will expand their hours over the next year to make up for that loss. Planned Parenthood of northern New England says it needs to reallocate its resources due to challenges, including the pandemic. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management. Committed to impact investing and building socially responsible investment portfolios for 25 years. Zevin.com slash WBUR. And the Worcester Art Museum with Us Them We. Race, ethnicity, identity. Diverse perspectives by over 40 contemporary artists now on view. WorcesterArt.org. In the forecast, it'll be partly to mostly cloudy this evening with strong thunderstorms moving through the area. Overnight lows down in the upper 50s. All sunshine tomorrow, mid-70s, and Wednesday mostly sunny again. Could see late showers, highs in the low 70s. Right now, 78 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. 
and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Emily Fang. The pandemic supercharged big tech companies, but now those companies have seen share prices drop dramatically. Smaller tech startups are feeling the pain too, as companies lay off employees and look for other ways to cut costs. NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen joins us to explain whether the slowdown represents a tech bubble bursting or something else entirely. Hi, Bobby. Hey, Emily. So there are big changes afoot in Silicon Valley. Companies have announced hiring freezes. Investors are losing tons of money on these plunging tech stocks. Bobby, the tech sector was booming just months ago. So what is going on here? Yeah, so the pandemic is important context. During lockdowns, as we all know, we became more dependent on our devices and apps and tech companies were rewarded handsomely. Their profits soared. So what's happening now is a bit of a come down from those frenzied times. One tech investor described it to me as a reality adjustment. But on top of this, there are other big picture factors affecting companies. You know, inflation at a 40 year high, the war in Ukraine, lockdowns in China. Taken together, it's a real problem for tech companies. I mean, Netflix lost 70% of its value from its pandemic high. Google recently had its worst month since the 2008 financial crisis. I rung up Greg Martin about this. He's a tech investor in Los Angeles, and he explained how Google's problems can have broad ripple effects. So if you see Google's ad business declining, well, that doesn't augur well for how things are going, you know, in the ad tech world, doesn't augur for how consumers are spending money. And so those are going to have impacts on companies that look to Google as an example of how good things are going in the economy. Okay, so trouble for Google could mean trouble for the whole economy. Just how bad could it get? It's hard to say. These companies have been surging for more than a decade, remember? And um, let's stick with Google uh, for an example. I mean, it has more than 150,000 employees. It's worth around the same as Italy's entire economy, right? A huge company. Um, so some analysts say, you know, some kind of adjustment was going to happen eventually. It's just this particular slowdown in big tech and the startup sector is spooking the entire industry. How exactly? Yeah, so like I said, the startup sector is experiencing a big, a bit of a of a pullback here. Remember, all, all of the tech titans, so Google, Facebook, and the rest of them, all began as startups, and now we're seeing trouble there. So-called unicorn companies, so companies worth more than a billion dollars, are seeing their values sink. For example, Instacart, the food delivery app that was a darling in the pandemic, it recently lost forty percent of its value. Startups are being forced to lay people off because money is running out, and venture capitalists like Greg Martin in LA say there is just a serious pullback in investment happening across the board. Venture investors are, you know, in much more pause mode. Let's slow things down. Let's spend more time thinking about the environment. Let's look at companies from all angles. Let's take the negative perspective and make sure the business works. Yeah, making sure the business works. It almost sounds ridiculous to say that out loud, but look, for a really long time, startups were getting lots of VC money based on sometimes a good feeling about a company, not whether the company actually had a way to make money. So just quickly, many listening might be wondering, is this a tech bubble? So all the tech investors I talked to said it sure looks different than declines of past years, but whether this is a bubble in the tech industry about to burst or just some new, less hyped up reality, we just don't know yet. And Pierre's Bobby Allen. Thank you. Thanks, Emily. Support for All Tech Considered comes from C3AI. 
C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. And from Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll, designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com radio. The alleged gunman who killed 10 people in a racist attack in a Buffalo grocery store this weekend is from Conklin, New York. Small town, mostly white, several hours from Buffalo near the Pennsylvania border. Residents of Conklin expressed shock at the attack. But some black residents in nearby Binghamton are not surprised. Phoebe Taylor Volo with member station WSKG reports. Jamay's flea market is a few miles from the alleged shooter's family home in Conklin. Tammy Clapper has worked at Jamay's for over 30 years. She's now one of the owners. She says she recognized the shooter because he used to shop at the flea market. Some of the vendors and workers there know him. They're shocked. It's such a small town and um, yeah, everybody's shocked that it has happened. Tony Nard is a vendor at Jamay's. He says Conklin residents are confused and surprised by the attack. When it hits this close to home, it really is equally um, painful. You just wonder why, you know, what causes somebody to have that much hatred. It just, to me, it's just not comprehensible. Conklin is about 95% white, according to 2020 census data. It's a 15-minute drive from Binghamton, a city where black residents make up about 12% of the population. Greater Good Grocery Store on Binghamton's north side serves mostly black residents. Like the store that was attacked in Buffalo, it's also in a food desert. Kenya Middleton is a black woman and the general manager of Greater Good. She's found herself thinking about whether she, her staff, and customers are at risk. She's suddenly aware of the size of the windows and whether she'd be able to see someone coming. Today, I, I, I caught myself, I came in at 7.30. Our store doesn't open till 9, but my employees come in around 8.15. But usually I leave the door open for them, and I didn't this morning. I, like, locked it and waited for them to, like, call me or knock. And then I let them in. It's just different, just a different awareness. But she's not surprised about the shootings in Buffalo. She says she experiences racism every day. She describes the last election cycle as a living hell. I felt like it was just like free reign, like for anyone to say anything they want. And it was just like, whatever, you know? So like to me, no, I'm not shocked by it. Like I experience it. Like I said, I experience it all the time. So I'm not shocked. Bishop Mario Williams and Pastor Henry Osby both minister to members of Binghamton's black community. Williams says he remembers working with a local group, addressing issues of race and trying to foster community in the area. It was very interesting because most of the people that live outside of the Binghamton area attended these meetings with us. He says many of them were white and didn't know any people of color. You know, the only thing they know about African Americans is what they saw on television. Osby says the fact that the alleged gunman was from so close by has caused fear among his congregation. 
this young, young man, he didn't have to drive three hours to Buffalo. What if he had decided he didn't want to go that far and he could have stopped right here in Binghamton? You know, he could have done the same thing here. So that has to be on, on your mind. Williams and Osby both say they're working to help their congregants process the attack. They say they're hoping that elected officials take action to prevent racist violence moving forward. For NPR News, I'm Phoebe Taylor-Vuolo in Binghamton, New York. Michigan's Democratic governor is working to overturn her state's 1931 ban on abortion that would become state law should Roe v. Wade be overturned by the Supreme Court. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, hear about hear from an anti-abortion activist in Michigan about why she thinks there should be a national ban on abortion. Just turn on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. There are prehistoric giants gliding through the depths of some U.S. rivers. A type of fish called lake sturgeon has been around since the time of the dinosaurs, but in the past century, populations have plummeted. As St. Louis Public Radio's Shayla Farzan reports, Missouri scientists are using tracking devices on this endangered species to try to prevent its extinction. The lake sturgeon is a strange-looking fish, with a curved snout, tail like a shark, and long whiskers near its mouth. Adults can be huge, growing longer than a king-size bed and weighing hundreds of pounds. They're just very strong, powerful fish, so they start thrashing around. It's hard to hold on to them. Sarah Peeper is a state fisheries biologist in Missouri. In April, as she was getting ready for church, she got an urgent phone call from a colleague. Lake sturgeon were spawning along the banks of the Mississippi River near St. Louis, where we're now standing. Peeper has been studying lake sturgeon for years, but she had never seen the fish reproduce in the wild. On that day, she and other scientists watched as the fish congregated in the shallows, thrashing their tails and releasing peppercorn-sized eggs. And it was like we had a little sturgeon spawning party on, on the shoreline. We were all just so excited. Lake sturgeon were once found in waterways ranging from Minnesota to Tennessee, but populations have plummeted in the past century, and the species is now listed as endangered in nine states. Lisa Izzo is a fisheries researcher at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. She says because sturgeon take years to mature, overfishing has decimated some populations. But she adds that river dams are also to blame. The dams in a lot of these systems cut off their access to that really high-quality spawning habitat, so they weren't able to reproduce as successfully. Izzo and others say protecting spawning sites is critical for sturgeon conservation. But where are these fish going to spawn? That question has long stumped scientists because lake sturgeon can be hard to find. It's not like you can just put a net out there and catch 20 or 30 fish. Researchers in Missouri are using technology to track sturgeon during spawning season. This spring, they captured adults and implanted radio transmitters under the silvery skin of their bellies. On an April morning, Peeper and two other scientists climb into a boat in the Mississippi River. Everybody aboard. Everybody like this. They submerse a microphone in the water, listening for tagged fish. 
a radio receiver pings when a sturgeon is nearby. Okay, and it, so we just heard a fish and it was a strong enough signal to give us a number. Each tag has its own ID. This fish, number 22462, was tagged three years ago in Iowa. Army Corps biologist Ryan Swearingen says by tracking the movements of individual fish, scientists hope to pinpoint habitats to protect. We can help keep this area as hospitable as we can during that prime spawning period. The project is just one piece of a larger effort to bring lake sturgeon back from the edge of extinction. So far, Peeper says, sturgeon have survived cataclysmic events over 150 million years. You know, we had the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs. We had continents crashing into each other and pulling apart. And these fish survived all of that. But, she says, Lake Sturgeon may not survive us unless we take action now to protect them. Shayla Farzan, and this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Just ahead on All Things Considered, author Emma Straub talks about her new novel, This Time Tomorrow, in which a middle-aged character wakes up at age 16. That story and more coming up here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU School of Social Work, offering a top-ranked MSW part-time program in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. Visit bu.edu ssw. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. In the forecast, it will be partly to mostly cloudy this afternoon, as well as overnight with strong thunderstorms moving through the area in the next few hours. Lows tonight dropping to the upper 50s. Mostly sunny tomorrow, highs in the mid-70s, and Wednesday a mix of sun and clouds. Could see showers in the evening, highs in the low 70s. Right now, 78 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. And Farmers to You, an online Vermont farmer's market who believes that you can only trust your food when you know your farmers. Farmers2U.com slash WBUR. You know, sometimes when you're going to make a big life-changing decision, it can be tough to tell the people around you. Nobody in your immediate circle wants to support you quitting your job because nobody wants to tell you to take a risk and then it turn out poorly for you. I'm Kai Rizdal taking that leap next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Emily Fang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. If you could be your 16-year-old self all over again, what would you change? That question is at the heart of Emma Straub's new novel, This Time Tomorrow, in which the central character, Alice, is turning 40. But when she wakes up in the morning after what we can fairly call a big birthday bender in a bar, she is not 40. She is 16. She is somehow back in her teenage bedroom in her teenage body. And everyone around her, including her beloved dad, is young again, too. Emma Straub, hey there. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, I want to start with Alice. As I mentioned, she's turning 40. 
Um, but she still lives in the same apartment she had since she was 25. She is still in the same starter job working at the school that she went to when she was a kid. Um, she's dating a guy she's not really in love with, and it's not clear she's going to do anything about that. Is it, <laughs> is, it, is it fair to say Alice is stuck? Yeah, you know, Alice, Alice is definitely stuck. She's in a holding pattern, and she's not quite sure how to shake out of it. Although I, I will also say that she's not miserable. You know, no. it's not that she's made horrible life choices. It's more that she hasn't really made any life choices. Hmm. <laughs> um, so you bring in about the most dramatic way possible to shake things up for her, time travel. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I thought one of the really fun things about this book was I was trying to figure out what kind of time travel are we dealing with here? Is this going to be like Groundhog Day? Is this like back to the future? Give, without, you know, giving anything away, just give us a little bit of a sense of what happens. Yeah, well, okay, so that, you know, that was one of the really fun things about writing this book was having that sort of conversation with myself. Uh -huh. uh, what kind of time travel is going on here? What are the rules? And then also having Alice go through that because Alice and I are the same age and we both uh, grew up on, uh, I would say, a steady diet of time travel. You know, um, the 80s and early 90s were rich with time travel narratives. Mm -hmm. And I wrote this in 2020 when of course I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't really walk down the street. I couldn't I couldn't leave my house. Um and I couldn't abandon my um small children or my current life. Uh and all I wanted to do was this. All I wanted to do was have access to the places that I love the most, which are the the like <laughs> the you know diners and hot dog restaurants of my youth on the Upper West Side. Well, and I love that. I hadn't thought about writing a time travel story during the pandemic when yeah. when we we all were desperate to travel to another point in time. Um, and I'm picturing you now, you know, in lockdown in quarantine with little kids running around saying, "Mom's gonna just disappear," and yes. you had your own portal in a way. You powered up your laptop and you were headed somewhere else. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um. It feels like we should let people know this is it's a story about time travel. It's also very much a love story um, about the love between a child and their parent. So introduce us to your other main character, Leonard. <laughs> it really is a love story. It's a love story between Alice and her father, Leonard Stern, who in her present day is in a hospital mostly unresponsive and hooked up to a lot of machines yeah. and dying. And it might sound strange to say that I've written an autobiographical time travel novel, but <laughs> but it's, um, it's exactly what I've done. Um, like Alice, um, my father is a writer and he was quite, quite ill uh, while I was writing this. And this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to go somewhere <laughs> where we were both safe and healthy um, and chain smoking and watching Jeopardy. Like I wanted to go sit at our kitchen table and just have everything be okay. And so that's what I did. Oh, did it help? Did it work? It did. <laughs> it did. I mean, I cried a lot. <laughs> 
<laughs> I cried a lot while writing. Um, but I really, I enjoyed, I enjoyed every minute of it because it felt so real to me. And, um, and my father is okay. Oh, I'm so glad I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah, he's okay. And, and writing this book was very much a gift for myself. You know, as you said, it's a portal that I gave myself. And so, you know, it, it would have been incredibly meaningful to me regardless. Um, but the fact that my dad then got to read it was pretty, pretty wonderful. Oh, that's lovely. I do need to ask about one other character, this unchanging eternal character, whatever time moment we're in, the cat, <laughs> Ursula, is alive and well. This cat must be what, at least 25 years old? Unless yeah. she too is a time traveler? What is up with yeah. Ursula? Um, Ursula is immortal. I, I, you know, I just, I decided, <laughs> I got several notes from my editor at various points saying, so what is going on with this cat? <laughs> I'm with um, your editor. <laughs> but I, <laughs> the, the other, um, you know, the other <laughs> deep relationship, this is exactly why people come on NPR, right, to say these kinds of things, um, mm -hmm. is my beloved cat killer who was 16 died while I was writing this book and I wanted her to live forever yeah. and so she did she is there she is Ursula she's ageless she's immortal she's perfect yeah you know if we can't grant the creatures that we love immortality in fiction then what is the point I love that so through the book killer is still curled up on your chest when you wake up yeah. in the morning yeah <laughs> What would you go back and change if you woke up and you could be 16 again? Oh, um, I don't think I would change anything. I think I would just, I would really, um, I would ask more questions and I would soak it all in. I would soak it all in. You know, it's still, it still seems just wild to me to think about how young my parents were, how young my grandparents were, you know, just people who, um, people who I don't have access to in the same way, or, who, you know, I don't have access to those versions of them anymore. Um, yeah. And also, you know, maybe like jump off something high just to do it, um, <laughs> you know, just be a little reckless. Take advantage of that 16 year old body that's going to spring yeah, right back. Those like bouncy bones and things. And it sounds like just to go back and sit at your kitchen table again, the moments yeah. that don't stand out when you're living through them because it's every day and you realize it's the every day that's the stuff you're going to miss. Yeah, just the jeopardy at the kitchen table. Alex Trebek forever. <laughs> We've been speaking with Emma Straub. Her new novel is This Time Tomorrow. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from USPS, serving every address in the country, more than 160 million nationwide. USPS, delivering for America. Learn more at usps.com delivering. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies, at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. 
and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens to help gardeners express their creativity outdoors at garden centers nationwide. ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com slash NPR. This is WBUR online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up next hour on All Things Considered, the Supreme Court sides with Senator Ted Cruz limiting a federal ban on outsiders repaying a candidate's campaign loan to himself. Forecast is partly to cloud, mostly cloudy this evening. Strong thunderstorms, lows in the upper 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England with Zootopia, June 4th, a gala supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos to inspire caring and action for wildlife. More at zoonewengland.org. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. Justice Department says it's investigating this weekend's mass shooting at an upstate New York grocery store as an act of domestic terror. It's Monday, May 16th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up, the latest on the investigation into the attack with Erie County authorities providing an update just in the last hour. Also, frustrations among Texas healthcare workers over COVID vaccine hesitancy. It's just shocking, you know. I mean, you're offering a drowning person a hand and they slap it away and they're kind of doubting that you can pull them ashore. It's very perplexing. And in a major shift, the International Rescue Committee says more people are now crossing the border into Ukraine then are leaving it. It's 5.01. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The White House is again condemning this weekend's racially motivated shooting in Buffalo, New York. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports a gunman opened fire to supermarket in a predominantly black neighborhood Saturday, killing 10 people. President Biden has described the attack as a racially motivated act of white supremacy. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre echoed those sentiments today while paying tribute to the victims and their families. We must do everything in our power to end hate-fueled domestic uh, terrorism, and we must reject hatred and extremism ideologies that seek to divide uh, Americans whenever we find it in our society. The FBI is investigating the shooting as both a hate crime and racially motivated violent extremism. The suspect, an 18-year-old white man, has been charged with first-degree murder. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Police say one person was killed. Five others were wounded in an attack at a Southern California church over the weekend. They say worshipers detained the gunman Sunday by hog-tying his legs with an electrical cord until authorities arrived. Congregant Jerry Chen says he saw church members screaming, running, and hiding under tables. The Orange County Sheriff's Department tweeted 68-year-old David Chow of Las Vegas has been booked on one count of murder and five counts of attempted murder in connection with the shooting at the Geneva Presbyterian Church in the city of Laguna Woods. Pennsylvania is one of five states holding primary elections tomorrow. The race for the Republican nomination for a U.S. Senate seat has become close among three top contenders. 
Morph MPR's Don Gagne. For months, it's been seen as a two-person contest in the Republican Senate primary. On top in polls, but just barely, is celebrity TV doctor Mehmet Oz. He's been endorsed by Donald Trump. Right behind him has been former hedge fund CEO Dave McCormick, who says he's the real conservative in the race. But the late surprise has been from the far right. TV commentator Kathy Barnett says she's more in tune with Trump's base of support than Trump himself while promoting opposition to abortion rights by telling her own personal story, that of the child of a mother who was raped at age 11 and who gave birth to Barnett 50 years ago. Don Gagne, NPR News. Pennsylvania's Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman is seeking the Democratic nomination in that Senate race. He is recovering from a stroke suffered days ago. Under pressure on the political and parental front, President Biden's administration is looking at an agreement to reopen the largest domestic manufacturing facility making infant formula. Officials are considering easing rules to allow supplies from overseas amid comes amid a nationwide shortage of baby formula. On Wall Street today, the Dow is up 26 points, the Nasdaq down 142 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Some parents in Brookline are expressing frustration over a teacher's strike. Unionized teachers with the town's public schools went on strike today, forcing schools to close. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, that has left many scrambling for child care, among other things. School leaders say information about whether schools will be closed tomorrow will go out by 6 a.m. But many parents say that doesn't give them enough time to plan. Faith Dantowitz is on the Special Education Parent Advisory Council. She says the uncertainty is hard on students, too. Especially the children who are suffering from mental health issues, especially after COVID. They're concerned that this is going to go on and on and on and school will be done. Union officials say outstanding issues include guaranteed prep time and plans to attract more educators of color. The school committee is urging teachers to end the strike, saying students and their caregivers shouldn't shoulder the impact of this disagreement. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Two more bodies have been discovered in a burned-out apartment building in Worcester. City officials say search teams made the discovery today, bringing the total of four, the number of people killed in the weekend blaze. The first two were confirmed dead hours after the fire that began early Saturday morning. Investigators say rescue crews were hampered by the roof's collapse and the discovery of several snakes living inside. The Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary is looking to sell some or all of its hundred plus acres in Hamilton. The multi-denominational seminary says it plans to look for a new home in Metro Boston. It cited distance learning and the seminary's long-term finances as reasons for the move. It also says 88% of its students do not live on the Hamilton campus. In sports, Red Sox start a three-game set at home against the Astros tonight. Celtics are off. They'll start the Eastern Conference Finals tomorrow night against the Miami Heat. In the forecast, partly to mostly cloudy this afternoon and overnight, with strong thunderstorms moving through the area, lows dropping to the upper 50s. Mostly sunny tomorrow, highs in the mid-70s. Right now, 78 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Emily Fang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The mass shooting in Buffalo, New York this Saturday has devastated yet another community. 
a gunman opened fire in a community grocery store, killing 10 people and injuring three. The suspect is an 18-year-old white man, and Buffalo's chief of police has said, quote, this is an absolute racist hate crime. Of the 13 victims, 11 were black. And before we get to the latest in the investigation, we want to spend some time hearing about them. Andre McNeil was 53. He went to the Topps grocery store to buy a birthday cake for his three-year-old son. Aaron Salter was 55. He was the store's security guard and a retired police officer. He attempted to stop the shooter on Saturday. Roberta Drury was 32. She needed groceries for dinner and often shopped for her adoptive brother, too. He's recovering from leukemia. Marcus Morrison, age 52, collected sneakers and loved music. He was on a shopping run for snacks for his weekly movie night with his wife. Geraldine Talley, age 62, lived in Atlanta. She was visiting family in Buffalo, and her niece remembers her as the life of the party, who always put the family reunions together. Celestine Cheney, age 65. She was a breast cancer survivor and devoted grandmother of six. Hayward Patterson, age 67, a church deacon who used to drive people to and from the store. Ruth Whitfield was 86. Her son says she visited her husband daily in the nursing home where he has lived for the last eight years, and he doesn't know how to tell his dad she's gone. Pearl Young, age 77, a veteran substitute teacher and mother of three who cooked and baked in her church's soup kitchen for a quarter century. And Catherine Massey, age 72. She wrote frequently to local news outlets commenting on a variety of issues and just last year had a letter published in the Buffalo News calling for more federal legislation to curb gun violence in the city. And Pierre's Quill Lawrence is in Buffalo covering this. He's here to bring us the latest. Hey, Quill. Hey, Mary Louise. All right. Well, let's start with the latest in the investigation. Where does it stand? The authorities here are just finishing up a press briefing uh, where they said essentially not very much new information. One, that the the suspect did visit Buffalo back in March as part of what seems to be a very lengthy preparation for the alleged attack. He's still in custody. He's segregated from the general population on suicide watch. Mm. Civil rights attorney Ben Crump was in Buffalo today with one of the families that lost their matriarch, the 86-year-old Ruth Whitfield. I know you were there. Tell us about it. Many members of her family spoke at a press conference. They, they said it was not easy for them. They're a private family. Her granddaughter, Camilla, said that her grandmother would never judge you. Such a good listener. And she would choose her words wisely before she responded and speak love into any situation that you had going on. Mm-hmm. Wow. My baby is 17 months old, and she was building such a beautiful relationship with her. She was our downstairs neighbor, and every time we came or went, she would knock on her door for a hug or a kiss. And I just try to walk so fast in and out the house now so that she doesn't try to stop. (laughs) And she will be missed. We love you, Grandmommy. So hard to listen to their pain. And Quill, I I mentioned in the intro, she visited her husband every day in his nursing home. Every day for eight years, I read she'd just left him when she went to the grocery store and was killed. Yes, they'd been married for 68 years. Uh, The family said that she went even days that she wasn't well, didn't feel like going herself. She would go and see him. And like you said, they're still just trying to figure out what they're going to say to their father about the fact that his wife of 68 years is gone and how she died. Ruth Whitfield's son, uh, Raymond, said that the family is sad but also angry. But this time, there's no wiping away these tears. There's no walking on with life. So I say to you, 
What are you willing to do so that the next time it's not you standing here before your broken-hearted family? One of the many people that our colleague Quill Lawrence is hearing from and talking to there in Buffalo as we follow the aftermath of this shooting. Quill Lawrence, thank you. Thanks, Mayor Louise. As the United States is marking one million COVID-19 deaths, the mortality rate is slowing, in part because 64 percent of the population is fully vaccinated. But the CDC says the virus's mortality rate is still being driven mainly by the unvaccinated. One in six Americans say they will definitely not get the vaccine. NPR's John Burnett reports from Texas, where local health workers are frustrated by the stubborn, unvaccinated population. West Hansen is piloting his muddy Subaru through the industrial landscape in southeast Texas, where he grew up, past silver refinery towers, Bible churches, and donut shops. The longtime social worker says he's given up trying to tell his clients how safe the COVID vaccines are. Now I've grown weary of it. I've realized that, you know, there's no convincing somebody once they have their mind made up. He parks in front of a ramshackle house and enters a living room overrun with cats and strewn with trash. Hi. I'm Wes. I checked with the husband to see what's A husband and wife in bathrobes lie in recliners in front of the TV. As I mentioned, I'm the social worker. And did you and the nurse talk about what services or benefits I might be able to help you with? Yes, but honestly, I don't remember what it was. The woman, a 57-year-old retired graphic designer named Faye, asks that her last name not be used because she was disabled by a stroke last year and wants her medical privacy. She went back to the hospital earlier this year with COVID, yet she still distrusts the vaccine. I just, I don't believe in the vaccination. It scares me too much. Yes, we have a polio vaccination from years and years ago, and it's worked fine. Measles, they worked fine. But I felt that the vaccination came out too quickly after COVID hit. The next residence Hansen visits is a townhouse with a neatly trimmed yard. Donna and Danny Downs are waiting for him in the living room. She's a work-at-home office manager. He's a retired insurance salesman who's legally blind. They're devout Baptists. Donna says her sister died from COVID, but that hasn't changed their minds. We don't like uh, vaccines because we feel like if we live healthy, eat healthy, and try to uh, take care of ourselves, that we have more of a immune where we don't get it. And if we get it, we feel like that's God's will. And so we just leave it in his hands. Her husband, Danny, adds, We just think it's a big government thing where they're trying to control the public. Later, Hansen visits Betty and Mike Spencer, a retired teacher and a truck driver, and their assortment of excitable dogs. And this is Coco. The Spencers forthrightly declare they believe in conspiracy theories. Mike says he watches Alex Jones' Infowars, and Mike is of the opinion that the vaccine was designed as a depopulation tool. I think there's malevolent stuff in them that has to do with uh, nanotech and transhumanism and the Internet of Things making people eventually with 6G, which is coming after the 5G, where you were... You were biologically tuned into the internet at all times. For the record, COVID-19 vaccines are FDA approved and recommended by the CDC because they're safe and effective at preventing serious or fatal cases of the virus. But the skeptics abound, says Liz Hamill. 
She's Vice President and Director of Public Policy and Survey Research at KFF, the Kaiser Family Foundation. I mean, one thing that has been really consistent in all of our surveys is the size of that group that says they're definitely not going to get vaccinated. It's been around 13 to 15% of the public, and that hasn't shifted in over a year. According to a recent KFF COVID-19 vaccine monitor, partisanship and political ideology play a much larger role than scientific evidence in vaccination decisions. In the survey, 56% of Republicans and 92% of Democrats said they'd been vaccinated. The people who have been most likely to say they're definitely not going to get a vaccine have been Republicans and people living in rural areas, as well as white evangelical Christians. Their research overlays with the unvaccinated individuals quoted in this story, who all said they voted GOP in the last election. Not all of Hansen's clients distrust the needle. Elizabeth Yar is a 78-year-old retired hairdresser who is vaccinated. When we arrive, she sprawled on her lazy boy watching TV. I saw too many people dying of COVID. So it just seems stupid to me to not want to get the vaccine. When the vaccines became available a year ago, West Hansen thought they were a godsend. So many of his clients were older with pre-existing medical conditions. But as the vaccine became more and more politicized, he watched as many of his clients rejected them. It's just shocking, you know. I mean, you're offering a drowning person a hand and they slap it away and they're kind of doubting that you can pull them ashore. It's, it's very perplexing. Hansen's frustration is shared by Kenneth Coleman, director of the Beaumont Public Health Department. In Jefferson County, where Beaumont is the largest city, a little over half the residents are fully vaccinated, a rate that trails the state and the nation. His office has been begging folks to get the vaccine. Beaumont is not a really big town, so nowhere is too far in Beaumont. But for the ones who want it, have gotten it. And for the ones who haven't gotten it, just don't want it. In his 30 years with the department, Coleman says he's never seen people so opposed to common sense health practices. Today, he's worried not just about another deadly COVID variant, but about the fundamental loss of trust in public health services. I'm just afraid of what's going to happen when the next public health crisis appears, because it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when and what. What happens if there's an outbreak of measles or meningitis or tuberculosis? I have people call me. It's like, well, I don't trust anything that CDC says. I say, well, when it comes to public health, there's no one left to trust because CDC is the Bible of public health. Compound the vaccine reluctance with the fact that Omicron numbers are far below last winter's peak. And Kenneth Coleman says his vaccination stations are lonely places. John Burnett, NPR News, Beaumont, Texas. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered in a first since the Russian war in Ukraine began, international observers now say more people are entering Ukraine than leaving it. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. In business news, a 700-acre solar project in New England is moving forward. Maine's Land Use Planning Commission says the project north of Augusta meets a set of local regulatory requirements, though more steps in the approval process are still needed. The project's build is one of the largest solar projects in the region. On Wall Street, stocks were mostly lower today. The Dow was up 26 points at 32,223, but the Nasdaq fell 142 points, more than 1%, to 11,662. And the S&P 500 dropped 15 points to end the day at 4,008. Marketplace will have all the day's business news at 6.30. Right now it's 5.19. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com and the Jennifer and Robert Waldron Civic Fund, supporting education, equity, and truth. In the forecast, it will be partly to mostly cloudy this evening with strong thunderstorms moving through the area over the next few hours. Then overnight lows in the upper 50s. All sunshine tomorrow. Highs in the mid-70s and Wednesday. Mostly sunny again with a chance of late showers. Highs in the low 70s. Right now, 77 degrees in Boston at 520. This is WBUR. Join Alexander Vindman or Nobel laureate Maria Ressa at WBUR's gala. Tickets at WBUR.org gala. Thanks to sponsors Mikkel and Doug Rao. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Poland, near the border with Ukraine. The refugee crisis here has entered a new phase. The flow of people has changed direction. Every day for about the last week, more people have been entering Ukraine than leaving, according to Poland's border guard. David Miliband is head of the International Rescue Committee, and he joins us to talk about the Ukrainian refugee crisis and the global response. It's good to have you here again. Thank you, Ari. It's really good to talk to you. When I was at the Polish border crossing two months ago, 1,500 people were entering Poland from Ukraine every hour. And yesterday I went back there and saw a line of cars and trucks almost 10 miles long going in the other direction. So what does this one local statistic mean more broadly for the refugee crisis right now? Well, I think that the simple answer is that the war isn't over, but the war has changed. When you were in Poland two months ago, it was still the case that Ukrainians across the country feared that their whole country would be taken over by the Russian invasion, that a new puppet government would be put in, and that no one would be safe anywhere. Now, the Russian offensive has been driven back, and the Russian forces are focusing in the east and in the south of the country, especially in the southeast of the country. In other parts of the country, there's relatively speaking safety, the economy's functioning, and people want to go back to see their relatives, to see their houses, 
And what they are worried about is not a Russian invasion, but a Russian missile strike. One thing that makes this refugee crisis different from any other that I have reported on is that there are no refugee camps. Ukrainians are not living in tents on the border. How has Europe avoided that? The answer from Europe has been very, very striking. It's to say every Ukrainian is guaranteed three years residence in Europe, three years work permits in Europe, three years access to social services, including education. Every Ukrainian is guaranteed access to welfare benefits. And what they've then done is said, government is playing its part. We appeal to the European population to house these people on the short-term basis and then facilitate their entry into rented housing for the longer term. From my point of view, this is very positive because although refugee camps often typify the image of a refugee, uh, they're not the main experience. Most refugees are in urban areas, not in camps. And for those who do go into a camp, how many times have you and I heard the camp is set up on a temporary basis and then people are still there 20 years later? And, and I describe refugee camps as funeral homes for dreams. Hmm. And so I think the fact that the Europeans have avoided creating new cities as refugee camps, I think is very positive. Do you see a double standard? Because the way that Poland has welcomed Ukrainian refugees is such a contrast to the walls and roadblocks that Poland and other countries put up to Syrians, Afghans, and others. Uh, even today, African students who were studying in Ukraine when the war broke out tell me they have been treated poorly in Poland. I met a Nigerian student named Shakira who was getting her master's degree when the war began. Now she's living in a shelter outside of Warsaw, and this is what she said to me. We've been here for like going two months. You're stuck in between. You know, it can go forward, it can go backward. The law should favor us also. We are not Ukrainians, yes, but we should understand that we are there when this war happened. David Miliband, do you think Ukrainians are being treated differently as refugees because they're European, because they're white? Yes, they are. And that's quite wrong. It's, it's actually formalized, which is that the European commitment that Ukrainian refugees can have the three years of work, residency, etc. That's not true if you're not a Ukrainian. And of course, globally, rights to work, rights to residency are much prized, but not often given in the way that they have been. And I think it's there's a bigger bit of politics uh, here, because although 141 countries around the world did condemn the Russian invasion in the UN General Assembly, 50 countries or so didn't. And they are countries that compose the majority of the world's population. So China, India, South Africa, Indonesia. And one of the reasons that they didn't want to condemn the Russian invasion is that they saw double standards. They saw, quote unquote, hypocrisy in the way that the refugees from Ukraine were being treated compared to the way other refugees are being treated. And so I think there is both a moral argument, a legal argument, but also a geopolitical argument that this needs to be a learning moment for the way the world recognizes that a refugee is defined not by their nationality, but by their status. And that's what it says in law, and that's what should be played out, especially by richer countries who have no excuse, frankly, for the discrimination that exists. We talked about the reasons it's helpful not to have refugee camps. On the flip side of that, having people dispersed and scattered means it's more difficult to offer medical care, to offer education, to offer some of the things that everybody who's dislocated needs. How does the international community respond to those challenges, which are, 
in some ways unique to this refugee crisis, which does not have people centralized in in one place. Well, it's true in other refugee crises that if you go to Beirut in Lebanon, Lebanon won't have any refugee camps for Syrians because of their they know the history of what happens with refugee camps. They have refugee camps set up in the late 1940s for Palestinians, and they're still there 70 years uh, later. So we have a lot of experience in the international aid sector of the upsides and the risks of the dispersal that you describe. Now, my own view is that in Europe, it's not difficult actually to get the healthcare because they have universal publicly funded healthcare. Mental health is a massive issue. There's actually provision of services uh, there. Now, you, you mentioned education. That is a challenge. The International Rescue Committee, my organization, we have a lot of experience in a thousand German schools helping Syrian refugee kids integrate. That takes additional help for teachers, additional support for the kids, additional support for the other kids who suddenly find, my God, there's 10 more people in my uh, class. But I think that our experience now is that there is good practice for how to do this dispersed integration effectively. And the Ukrainians are clear, just like many other refugee populations, they want to go home when it's safe. The trouble is they don't know when it's going to be safe. And that needs to be respected. As you've laid out, there are open-ended questions and needs that still have to be met. That said, how would you compare the success of this refugee effort to other crises that you've been involved with? Well, we can compare it, first of all, in funding. And effectively, seven, eight times the amount of funding per head has been available for Ukrainians as for Syrians or Afghans or South Sudanese or Rohingya fleeing from uh, Myanmar. Secondly, I think the organization has been facilitated by the fact that Europe's a very rich continent by global standards. Globally, it's poor countries that host refugees, not rich countries. 85% of the world's refugees are in lower middle income or, or poor countries. So Europe's been able to rally because it has the infrastructure to, to, to do so. So I think this response needs to set the benchmark for the way the world needs to respond globally. That's the lesson, that anyone who tells you an exodus of people is unmanageable is wrong. It's manageable if you're committed and organized and funded to do so. And that's, I think, the real lesson of this crisis. David Miliband is the head of the International Rescue Committee. Thank you for talking with us today. Thank you, Eric. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. Coming up on All Things Considered, why some of the Republican lawmakers in Pennsylvania who passed an expanded mail-in voting law are now suing to get it repealed. Also, air power in the war in Ukraine and why Russia hasn't been able to establish supremacy in the skies. That's coming up. Remember, how you eat can help move the needle on climate change here in New England. Sign up for WBUR's Cooked newsletter to learn more at WBUR.org slash cooked. In the forecast, partly to mostly cloudy this afternoon and overnight, strong thunderstorms, lows dropping to the upper 50s. Right now, 76 degrees in Boston at 529. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Building Restoration Services, hiring architects, engineers, and estimators to solve complex building envelope problems. BuildingRestorationServices.com. 
Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into All Things Considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden and the First Lady will visit Buffalo, New York tomorrow, where a white gunman allegedly opened fire in a grocery store, killing 10 black people. The suspect allegedly published a racist screed online before carrying out the attack. Reverend Charles H. Walker II is senior pastor of Mount Hope Community Church, not far from where this shooting took place. There is so much evil in our world, in the world we live in today. But it's nothing that's acquired. It was they, They've been bred into that. Authorities are investigating the attack as a racially motivated hate crime. The number of people being admitted to hospitals in the U.S. for treatment of COVID-19 is once again rising. NPR's Allison Aubrey says new hospital admissions jumped by about 15 percent last week. CDC data shows the U.S. is averaging about 82,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 per day. The country is averaging nearly 300 deaths a day. And a Brown University analysis finds more than 300,000 people who died from COVID over the past year could be alive if they'd gotten vaccinated. Dr. Calvin Johnson of Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles has worked to tackle vaccine hesitancy. It's just heartbreaking you know, when it was preventable. As the U.S. approaches the one million death milestone, the hope is that the protection from prior infections, vaccination, and more access to treatments will help prevent more deaths. Allison Albury, NPR News. And New York City health officials are urging people to wear masks in all indoor public settings as the city approaches high-risk COVID-19 alert status. The city has been averaging around 3,600 reported new cases of coronavirus a day over the past week. Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory. The Dow up 26 points. The Nasdaq down 142. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. The MBTA is announcing a near total redesign of the system's bus routes and frequency. It's an effort to boost bus service by 25 percent across the board. More now from WBUR's Steve Brown. The current routes have been in place for nearly 50 years. MBTA General Manager Steve Poftak says the greater Boston area has changed over that time with people working and living in different places, but that the bus network has not changed with it. This is about reinvigorating the entire bus system. It's about envisioning a number of new routes. It's about adapting some of our current routes and doing it in a way that gets people where they want to go, that gets people to the current and new sources of employment and housing. The T is currently seeking the public's input on the proposed routes and hopes to have them in place within the next five years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Brookline leaders are urging teachers to end their strike that led to today's closure of the town's nine schools. Brookline School Committee says it's concerned about how the closure is affecting students, especially those with disabilities and those who rely on schools for food. But the Brookline Educators Union says the strike is necessary. Teachers are calling for higher pay and dedicated prep time. They also want changes that will attract and retain educators of color. Another round of negotiations is underway this evening. Brookline says 
It'll make a decision about whether there will be classes by 6 a.m. tomorrow. A new federal agency that could rival research agencies like the Centers for Disease Control and the National Institutes of Health could be based in Massachusetts. Local political and business leaders are launching a campaign to bring the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health to the state. The biomedical agency will work on accelerating research to prevent and cure diseases, including cancer and Alzheimer's. Congress has approved a billion dollars to establish it, and Massachusetts Congressman Richard Neal says the president will be requesting billions more. He has requested in the next budget cycle $6.5 billion, and this would be ongoing once the competition was successfully met and the location was chosen. Texas, California, and North Carolina are among other states that will be competing with Massachusetts. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Newton at Home, a nonprofit helping members stay in their own homes as they age. Learn more at newtonathome.org. In the forecast, it'll be partly to mostly cloudy this evening. Strong thunderstorms moving through over the next few hours. Overnight lows down in the upper 50s. All sunshine tomorrow. Highs will be in the mid-70s. Right now, 76 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, focused on providing holistic financial planning from retirement and investments to taxes and estate planning in the client's best interest. Let's make a plan.org. And from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Emily Fang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The U.S. Supreme Court's conservative majority sided with Republican Senator Ted Cruz on Monday. Candidates will often give or lend money to those to their campaigns. Today's decision ended the federal ban on repayment of those loans coming from outside sources. The vote was six to three, as NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. Cruz challenged a federal law that's been on the books for 20 years. It bars federal candidates from raising more than $250,000 after an election to repay loans that the candidate made to his own campaign. Writing for the Sixth Justice Conservative Majority, Chief Justice John Roberts pointed to previous decisions holding that the First Amendment guarantee of free speech safeguards the ability of a candidate to use personal funds to finance his own campaign. Those personal funds, Roberts said, include a bank loan guaranteed by the candidate. To put a limit on money raised to repay after such a personal loan after an election, Roberts said, would burden a candidate's core political speech. This money is going directly into the pocket of the officeholder. So it's not really a campaign contribution. It's a financial gift. Campaign finance reform advocate Fred Wertheimer. It's continuing a pattern of extreme hostility by the Supreme Court ever since Chief Justice Roberts came on the court. They have really tilted the system to the very wealthy in this country. But Chief Justice Roberts, addressing fears of influence peddling, said, quote, influence and access embody a central feature of democracy, that constituents support candidates who share their beliefs and interests, and candidates who are elected can be expected to be responsive to those concerns. 
In dissent, Justice Elena Kagan, writing for the court's three liberals, accused the majority of greenlighting all the sordid bargains that Congress had tried to stop. Now, once again, she said, the politician, after being elected, is deeply grateful to the wealthy individuals and corporate lobbyists who pay off his loans, and they, in turn, will receive favorable legislation, maybe prized appointments, and maybe lucrative contracts. The only loser, said Kagan, is the public, which inevitably suffers from government corruption. Kagan and Roberts dueled over the facts in the pages of their opinions, each citing information, sometimes from the same studies, and coming to different conclusions. Roberts said, in essence, that none of the studies could prove there was a pattern of quid pro quo corruption in the payoff of post-election loans. Kagan replied that quid pro quo financial arrangements are nigh unto impossible to detect and prove, but she cited a sampling of such cases that have been found in states that do not make such financing arrangements illegal. In Kentucky, for instance, two governors loaned their campaigns millions of dollars only to be repaid after the election by contributors seeking no-bid contracts. The scandal those transactions created led to a new state campaign finance law similar to the one struck down today by the Supreme Court. Though campaign finance reformers were disappointed by today's high court ruling, they were nonetheless relieved. The court did not do the one thing that Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell asked it to do in a friend of the court brief. He asked that the entire bipartisan campaign finance reform law enacted in 2002 be struck down, including the limits on campaign contributions. The court, at least for now, did not take the bait. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Pennsylvania is one of five states holding their primaries tomorrow. In 2019, a Pennsylvania state law expanded which voters there can mail in their ballots. But Republicans across the country have turned against mail-in voting. And now a group of GOP lawmakers who helped pass the Pennsylvania law three years ago are suing to get it thrown out. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong has the story. On Halloween 2019, Pennsylvania's Democratic governor made the newscast of Harrisburg's ABC 27. Tom Wolf will sign an election reform bill today that would deliver the, the bill capped off a bipartisan deal that had the backing of almost every Republican lawmaker in the GOP-controlled legislature. The bill would allow voters to mail in ballots. And not just some voters. Pennsylvania Act 77 allows all voters to mail in their ballots. Every bill, we can pick some pieces that we don't like about it. One of the state's top Republicans, the then state Senate Majority Leader Jake Corman, sang Act 77's praises in October 2019. But I think ultimately uh, this is the most significant uh, modernization of our, of our elections uh, code uh, in, in decades. These days, though, many Republican lawmakers in Pennsylvania have changed their tune. Corman, who recently dropped out of the Republican primary for governor, has since called for ending no-excuse mail-in voting. And so has state Senator Doug Mastriano, a frontrunner in that governor's primary who's backed by former President Donald Trump. There's also State Representative Dan Mao. So, my bad. I should have checked the constitutionality of that big bill. Mal is one of 11 Republicans in the Pennsylvania State House who are arguing in a lawsuit that the mail-in voting provisions in Act 77 that they voted for three years ago 
violate the state's constitution. We pass bills all the time. Do we go back and check every single one to make sure it stays within the confines of the Constitution? We'd never get anything done if we did that. In court filings, the lawmakers argue that to change who can vote by absentee ballot in Pennsylvania requires changing the state's constitution. But the governor's administration counters that the state constitution allows lawmakers to determine how voters can cast their ballots. The case is now with the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Trump and his allies have baselessly attacked the integrity of mail-in voting. State Representative Dan Mao says there's no connection between Trump's loss in 2020 and this Pennsylvania lawsuit. Instead, Mao points to the state Supreme Court's ruling that extended the deadline for accepting mail-in ballots and allowed drop boxes during major postal service delays in 2020. Had they had left it alone, we probably wouldn't be talking today. Voters like Hassan Bennett are worried that depending on how the high court rules, fewer citizens could have the ability to vote by absentee ballot including those who are jailed in their hometown while waiting for a trial, like Bennett once was. They came to me with a ballot one day. It's a gasp of fresh air. It's empowering. Bennett, a bail navigator who was wrongfully convicted for a crime he did not commit, is part of a group of voters organized by local voting rights groups to help show the Pennsylvania Supreme Court who exactly could be affected if mail-in voting is restricted. Bennett says that absentee ballots have been an essential lifeline for many citizens in Pennsylvania's jails. Not only are they going to be more likely to vote, they're going to be more likely to advocate for other people to vote. And that's what democracy is all about. Everybody's voice being heard. In order for our voices to be heard, we need to be able to have the same access to the ballot boxes as everybody else. Molly Mayen is a nurse at Children's Hospital Philadelphia, who often has to work 12-hour shifts on election days. She's also part of the court filing in support of mail-in voting. The reality is a lot of us, whoever's working on election day, if they're not using mail-in voting, they're most likely not voting. Mayan says she's not sure yet if she'll be able to schedule time off to vote in person for November's election. And if she can't, whether her voice is heard through a mail-in ballot may be up to the courts. Anzi Wong, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered. President Volodymyr Zelensky said recently that Ukraine's military had just shot down its 200th Russian aircraft. Now, we can't independently verify that number, but it does point to one of the more surprising facets of this war. Instead of dominating the skies as expected, Russian pilots are so vulnerable they are reluctant to enter Ukraine's airspace. For more, we are joined by NPR's Greg Myrie, who is in Ukraine's airspace, or at least beneath it. He's in the capital, Kiev. Hey, Greg. Hi, Mary Louise. So this was very much the expectation going into the war. That Russia was going to rule the skies and deliver a potential knockout blow to Ukraine. What happened? Well, to answer that, we took a short drive just outside of Kiev today to recall those first days of the war. Russia was so confident in its air power that on day one, it sent helicopters loaded with paratroopers to the Hostomel airport. It's a military and cargo airport less than 10 miles northwest of the city. Russia planned 
to secure the base, have many more troops land there, and then Russia would seize Kiev within days. But the Russians were beaten back in heavy fighting, and the airport is still a graveyard of burned-out buildings and vehicles stacked on top of each other. Ukrainian troops are at the base in full control. Civilians are coming back to the area, and this set the tone for Russia's air operations so far. But I suppose my question is why? Because you're describing it was one battle. It was very early on in the war. To this day, Russia has way more planes, way more modern war planes than Ukraine. Why over time is that not proving to be a huge advantage for Russia? Yeah, it's a mystery. The Russians are believed to have at least 15 military aircraft for every one that Ukraine has. And yet from the start, Russian planes and helicopters have been getting shot out of the sky. So to protect their planes and pilots, the Russians tend to fly into Ukraine airspace very briefly, and sometimes not at all. I spoke with Phillips Payson O'Brien, a military expert at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, about the Russian pilots. They're staying over the Black Sea or they're staying in Russia and firing guided missiles. So they simply are not comfortable flying in Ukraine for any extended period of time. And that means they can drop bombs or they can launch missiles, but they can't control the airspace over a battle. It sounds like to the point you just made, Greg, about Russian planes and helicopters getting shot out of the sky. How much of this has to do with Ukraine's air defense systems and the damage they have been able to do? Perhaps Ukraine's most underappreciated weapon in this war is the S-300. It's an old, hulking, Soviet-era air defense system that fires missiles that can take down jet fighters. Ukraine has a relatively small number. It's not saying how many. And the Russians desperately want to take them out. They've taken out a few, but not all of them. How is all this playing out now, Greg, on what is the main battleground now, eastern Ukraine? Well, if the Russian planes controlled the skies, they could hang out, loiter over the battlefield, and target Ukrainian troops. And that would make it much harder on the Ukrainian ground forces. But we're just seeing these Russian planes bombing from a distance. It's very destructive, but not as effective or accurate. Uh, And that's in the east. Here in Kyiv, life appears normal in many ways. People are on the streets. You find traffic jams. Residents, of course, are closely following the war. But the fear of a Russian attack, while it hasn't gone away, is greatly diminished. And PR's Greg Myrie, who is there in Kyiv, Ukraine. Thank you, Greg. My pleasure. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org. I'm Jack Lepiars, coming up on All Things Considered, why Benjamin Franklin included instructions for at-home abortions in the back of a math textbook. That's coming up. Sports, Boston Celtics may be without Marcus Smart tomorrow night for Game 1 of the NBA Eastern Conference Finals. Team says the guard sprained his foot in yesterday's Game 7 against the Milwaukee Bucks. Smart is listed as questionable for the first game in the Best of Seven series. In the forecast, it'll be partly to mostly cloudy this afternoon and overnight with strong thunderstorms, lows dropping to the upper 50s. Mostly sunny tomorrow, highs in the mid-70s. Right now, 76 degrees in Boston at 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walnut Hill School for the Arts. Championing creativity. Arts and academics for grades 9 to 12. Apply for 2022-23. WalnutHillArts.org. 
and Dedham Community Theater celebrating independent film, now showing The Duke and Petite Maman, and reopened every day. Visit DedhamCommunityTheater.com. Former U.S. National Security Council Director for European Affairs Alexander Vindman said Russia's invasion of Ukraine marks the beginning of the end for Vladimir Putin. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Vindman will join me for a candid conversation about the war in Ukraine at the WBUR Gala on May 26th. Limited tickets remain at WBUR.org gala. Thanks to our sponsors, the Gammon Family Charitable Foundation and Dinah Beekner Vischer. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Emily Fang. Bear with me as we go back in time, way back to Philadelphia in 1748. Benjamin Franklin put quill to paper that year, so to speak, adapting a popular British math textbook for the American colonies. He told readers his goal was to update the book with matters, quote, more immediately useful to Americans. Among those matters, the founding father added a clear and easy-to-follow guide for an at-home abortion, drawn from a medical pamphlet written by a doctor in Virginia. So how does that square with a leaked Supreme Court opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade, specifically the contention that, quote, a right to abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's histories and traditions? Molly Farrell studies early American literature as an associate professor at The Ohio State University, which means she knows a lot about the nation's histories and traditions. She wrote about Franklin's abortion how-to for Slate and joins us now. Welcome, Molly. Thanks, Emily. It's great to be here. Start by telling us a little bit about the original version of this textbook, which was called The Instructor. What was in this book and what was its purpose? So The Instructor was by George Fisher, who is a pseudonym. We don't know who wrote it. It was a really popular catch-all manual published in London. I believe it went through eight or nine editions in London. And you could learn to read on it. It had the alphabet in it. It had basic arithmetic, recipes. And it had a how-to book on farriery, which is the care for horses' hooves. So books were expensive at the time. And if you just had money to buy one or two books in your home, the Bible and maybe something else, this would be a great reference manual. And Franklin saw this as useful for an American audience, but he wanted to make it more relevant for the colonies. What changes did he make to this textbook? Yes. So um, he called it the American Instructor. Um, In the arithmetic section in the word problems, he changed the place names, made them Boston and Jamaica instead of London and Flanders. He added a little section on colonial history. And then um, the biggest change that you can see from the title page is that he swapped out the big section on farriery and a medical textbook that was from London. And he inserted it with a Virginia medical handbook from 1734 called Every Man His Own Doctor, The Poor Planter's Physician. And what was in that section of of the book? So that's what I was most interested in. So um, I don't know if you grew up with these, you'd have a book around that just said like home remedies. You don't need to call your doctor for this. You can take care of it yourself. So I was looking at all the different entries in there. And there was one that was pretty long and pretty obvious. And it was called for the suppression of the courses. And I was reading this and it comes right after entries for fever or dropsy. So those are the entries were listed as problems that need to be solved. So fever, here's how to solve it. Gleet or gout, here's how to solve it. Suppression of the courses, here's how to solve it. And the word courses from about the 15th to the 19th century, I looked in the dictionary, it means menses. So it means your period. 
So that's a missed period. So I thought, okay, how do you solve the problem of a missed period? And it says, this is a common complaint among unmarried women um, that they miss their period. And then it starts to prescribe basically all of the best known herbal abortifacients and contraceptives that were circulating at the time. It's just sort of a greatest hits of what 18th century herbalists would have given a woman who wanted to end a pregnancy early in, early in her pregnancy. And that's what, by the way, this uh, abortifacient recipe would really be for was really early. It talks about like, make sure you start to take it a week before you expect to be out of order. So take it before you've even missed that period and it'll be most effective. So it's very explicit, very detailed, also very accurate for the time in terms of what was known at the time for how to end a pregnancy pretty early on. And then at the end, it just really comes out swinging and lets you know, this is definitely uh, related to sex because it says, you know, also women, you know, in order to prevent this complaint at the end, so prevention for next time, um, don't long for pretty fellows or any other trash whatsoever. You write in your article for Slate, that Ben Franklin's instructions for an at-home abortion were actually taken from a medical pamphlet that was written by someone else that seems to suggest that this knowledge was quite common. How much other documentation out there do we have from this time about abortion? I mean, so, you know, if you kind of were in the market in Philadelphia and some women were chatting, what were they talking about? And particularly when you think about herbal remedies and herbal remedies for, as it says, female infirmities in the book, that's gonna be something that's even less likely to enter into print because we have midwives are taking care of that. Women's literacy rates were lower. They're not writing medical textbooks, but they have all this knowledge. So what John Tennant did, this Virginia handbook, he tried to make it a really American herbal. And one way that typically that was done was stealing herbal knowledge from indigenous people in Virginia and from enslaved Africans. A lot of early American scientists, that's where they got their knowledge and then they put it into print and called it their own. What's interesting about what Franklin did is that he made sure to find a very American and actually very detailed, very accurate according to the time and very explicit herbal remedy and then promote it. You know, he was platforming it, basically. He circulated it loudly. He appended it into a volume that he was saying, this is basically all the knowledge that every American should know. And you should know your reading, and you should know your writing, and you should know home remedies that include how to have an abortion if you need to. If this knowledge about the, quote, suppression of the courses back then was just as commonplace then as learning how to add or dispel, then how... How was abortion conceptualized? Was it considered taboo? Clearly for Benjamin Franklin, one of the architects of our nation, and for the people that bought his book, which went through reprintings all the way throughout the 18th century, the American instructor was hugely popular. It was absolutely not taboo. This was not banned. We don't even have any records of people objecting to this. It didn't really bother anybody that a typical instructional manual could include uh, material like this, could include a, a addressed explicitly to a female audience, um, making sure they had all the herbals available to them that their local midwife might have as well, and just putting that right into print. It just wasn't something to be remarked upon. It was just a part of everyday life. These days, people who oppose abortion will talk about the rights of the unborn child of the fetus. Was that part of the public conversation at the time Ben Franklin was adapting this textbook? 
I really haven't seen much of that at all. I mean, there's certainly concerns about women's uh, sexual behavior. There's certainly concerns about morality and immorality and also whether or not that woman would try to conceal what happened. It's really about regulation of women. And that I think we can trace all the way right up to today and really see this attack on abortion rights as completely contiguous with that. It goes under the guise of supposedly protecting embryos and fetuses, but what happens is that it um, really damages and threatens women's health and constrains the lives of, of anyone who could become pregnant. Molly Farrell is an associate professor of English at The Ohio State University. Thank you. Thank you so much, Emily. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. And from CrowdStrike, their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at CrowdStrike.com NPR. And from Subaru, with the 2022 Subaru Crosstrek, an SUV with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and an available 182-horsepower engine. Love. It's what makes Subaru, Subaru. This is WBUR online at WBUR.org. I'm Jack Lepiars. In the forecast, it'll be partly to mostly cloudy tonight. Strong thunderstorms, lows in the upper 50s. Right now, 76 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by 1776 at the ART, a revolutionary revival of the Tony Award-winning musical. Starts tomorrow. More at AmericanRepertoryTheater.org. And Red Fire Farm, organic summer farm shares with veggies, fruit, cheese, and more. Delivery or pickup in Boston, Watertown, Brighton, and more. RedFireFarm.com. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Ukraine's president salutes a group of Ukrainian soldiers who've reached the Russian border northeast of Kharkiv, the country's second largest city. It's Monday, May 16th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Jack Lepiars, in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, the latest on the war in Ukraine and how Ukrainian children who fled the fighting are now getting an education in neighboring Poland. This school is about support, is about love. This school is about just, you are not alone. Also this hour, how the Supreme Court's potential overturning of Roe versus Wade could upend the governor's race in Maine. And at 6.30 on Marketplace, the new White House initiatives to address the lack of starter homes on the market. It's 6.01. First, this news. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The police commissioner of the city of Buffalo says it appears the accused 18-year-old gunman who opened fire in a supermarket in a predominantly black neighborhood, killing 10 black shoppers and wounding three others, was prepared to continue killing people had he not been apprehended. Police Commissioner Joseph Grimalier says the investigation is ongoing. This is a, a very long investigation. It's going to continue to be a very lengthy investigation. The scene is still being processed. Search warrants have been obtained and executed, and they will still be obtained. There's a lot of uh, digital footprint uh, electronics that we'll have to go through. So that process is ongoing. The alleged gunman Peyton Gendron has been charged with murder. The FBI has also opened a hate crimes investigation. Gendron, in a lengthy, hate-filled, racist screed, had laid out his plans for the attack, saying he was targeting minorities he thought were out to, quote, replace him. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden travel to Buffalo tomorrow. Ukrainian forces have pushed Russian troops back to within two miles of the Russian border as fierce fighting continues in the eastern Donbass region of Ukraine. More from NPR's Tom Bowman. The Ukrainian forces around the country's second largest city, Kharkiv, had earlier prevented the Russian troops from claiming Kharkiv and encircling the area. Now they've driven the Russian troops nearly back to its own border. A senior defense official says the Ukrainian success was made possible partly by the recent delivery of American howitzers which can fire a 90-pound shell some 14 miles. Still, the official says the Russians continue to bombard the city. Meanwhile, the official says there's a real gunfight in the Donbass region, where the Russians have made small gains, although they're stymied by an inability to cross a river in the area. Ukrainian forces recently destroyed a Russian pontoon bridge, along with hundreds of troops. Tom Bowman, NPR News, Washington. The Food and Drug Administration has declined to authorize a common antidepressant as a COVID treatment. As NPR's Ping Wong reports, the agency says there's no clear evidence it works. Fluvoxamine is a cheap, widely available drug for depression and obsessive compulsive disorder. The drug also reduces inflammation and cell damage, which led some to hope that it would work as an early treatment against COVID. Some early studies showed promise, and a University of Minnesota physician, supported by other doctors and researchers, asked the FDA to authorize it. But the FDA says there's insufficient evidence to support it. The agency says the studies on the drug show conflicting results, and it's not clear that fluvoxamine helps prevent COVID hospitalizations or deaths. Ping Huang, NPR News. McDonald's says it started the process of rolling up its operations in Russia. The company saying it plans to sell its 850 restaurants there with hopes a buyer will hire its employees and pay them until a deal there closes. On Wall Street today, the Dow is up 26 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. The MBTA's board of directors expects the Federal Transit Administration to deliver its final report on the T's safety by the end of the summer. The FTA inspection comes after a series of safety incidents on the T, including the death of a man on the red line last month. A train dragged the man to his death after his arm got caught in a door as he tried to exit the train car. MBTA Chief Safety Officer Ron Esther says he and the Board of Directors welcome the safety management inspection. And we will fully support the SMI review and we will cooperate with uh, the FTA during this inspection. Esther says the FTA will continue to inspect trains for potential safety issues over the next few weeks. School leaders in Brookline say they'll announce by 6 a.m. whether there will be classes tomorrow. Hundreds of teachers are on strike. Teachers say they're fighting for higher pay, built-in prep time during school hours, and reforms to hire and retain more staff of color. 
Eric Schiff is a guidance counselor at Brookline High School and the chair of negotiations for the Brookline Educators Union. I think morale's great. I think we're all united to get something done and, and to make a point. And, um, you know, this isn't what anybody wants to do, and they're doing it. So that, that, that tells you how important it is. The school committee says students have become victims in the labor dispute, and it's calling on the teachers' union to call off the strike. Another negotiating session began last hour. Forty black and Latinx leaders from across Massachusetts are teaming up to address racial and ethnic disparities in health care, calling it the Health Equity Compact. WBUR's Chris Siderick has more. It's not a new problem, but Michael Curry, CEO of the Massachusetts League of Community Health Centers, told WBUR that right now there is real opportunity for action. We've never seen this moment in Massachusetts, never seen this much representation in the government sector and in the private nonprofit sector, we have to seize that opportunity. Curry says, like with Romneycare, making clear the human and financial costs of the current inequities will be key to moving the needle and bringing meaningful change. We got health reform in Massachusetts, became the model for the Affordable Care Act on a national level because we made the business case. Organizers say a crucial first step will be a study examining cost of care, and they hope to have that completed by early next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Chris Siderick. In the forecast, it will be partly to mostly cloudy this afternoon and overnight with strong thunderstorms moving through the area over the next few hours, lows dropping to the upper 50s. Mostly sunny tomorrow, highs in the mid-70s, and Wednesday a mix of sun and clouds with a chance of showers, highs in the low 70s. Right now, 75 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Abe and Ida Cooper Foundation commemorating Fred Cooper by supporting public radio programming that highlights issues including diversity, racism, equality, anti-Semitism, and sexism. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Poland. At a school in Warsaw, seven and eight-year-olds are singing along to a tune that every Polish child knows. The kids touch their eyes, ears, mouth, and nose as they sing. It's the Polish version of Head, Shoulders, Knees, and Toes. These children are just starting to learn the language. They've only been in the country a month or two. All of them are refugees from Ukraine. This school is about support, is about love. This school is about just, you are not alone. Oksana Vakil is one of three principals here. When the war broke out and people began flooding into Poland, a group of Ukrainian educators used money from nonprofit organizations to open this school in just 24 days. It's in an unused college building. 300 teachers applied for 22 positions. 400 kids applied for 270 slots. All of them, teachers, staff, and kids, are refugees. The principals had to decide who to accept. We decided that we would take, firstly, children from the hottest point of Ukraine, like Mariupol, like Bucha, like Izum, uh, students who has no uh, possibilities to learn in Ukraine. Because if it's more safe place in Ukraine, they have got online lessons mm-hmm. with their teachers from Germany, Italy, from any part of the world. That means the students at this school are also among the most traumatized. Principal Vakil was trained as an art therapist. She opened a language school near Kyiv before the war, and she remembers the first day she taught a class here. I saw 
just uh, empty eyes. You know, I am teacher for 20 years. I, I teach uh, my English through creative movement all the time, through art. So I get used to move, to, to see the reflection of bodies. And I didn't see the reflection of bodies. They were just sitting, looking in one. And this is the first grade. When you see the first graders whose nature is to move, to shake and not to freeze, and you see that they are frozen, they have no emotions, and you try to do this material, that material, and you see no reaction. It's really scary. As the weeks went by, they began to open up. They started to play and make friends. And now when we come, it's noise. Wow, it's noise. They are shouting, they are fighting. In the hallway between classes, kids run up to hug the principal. They range in age from 6 to 18. Art covers the walls. One of the kids has drawn a tree with the days of the week, and there are leaves and branches for Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. But Thursday, instead of a leaf or a branch, there's a missile, and it says the 24th of February, and the missile is hitting the trunk of the tree, and the tree is bleeding because February 24th is the day that Russia attacked Ukraine. Diana Norchuk is 15. That's a challenging time in anybody's life, but especially when you've been uprooted from everything that's familiar. She says it's a relief to be able to show up at this school and feel a bit like you're back home. We have just a little piece in Warsaw, a little piece of Ukraine, because here is people from my native uh, city, from my native country that speak nat my native uh, language. When you're at school, do you try to focus just on learning and studying and doing the work, or is there also an opportunity to think and talk about what everybody is going through in this difficult time? I try to uh, not focus on this theme, because uh, every time when I come into Instagram or Telegram, I see the news with uh, What's wrong in the uh, Lviv, what's wrong in the Kyiv, Kharkiv, and it's broke my heart. So uh, uh, I try to focus on the learning, studying. Not all of her distractions are related to war. First of all, I must have prom at this time, yes. You are determined to have a prom. Yes. Along with everything else she has to deal with, being a refugee means she might not get to have the prom she's always dreamed of. According to the UN, half the people who fled Ukraine are children. Poland has taken in more than a million Ukrainian kids. And they're not living in refugee camps, which is a good thing in many ways, but it means the kids are spread out all over the place. So providing education is more of a challenge. And so the Ukrainian kids in Poland are not all in special schools that were built for refugees. This is a Polish public school on the other side of Warsaw. It had a student body of 300, then the war started, and the school added 100 Ukrainian kids. All the students here have special permission to use their phones for Google Translate. 14-year-old Masha Zamoro sits down with us in a classroom where the walls are lined with homemade posters of Ukrainian flags and the desks have been painted yellow and blue for Ukraine. Sometimes when I have break, I think about Ukraine. It's very hard. But then there is another lesson after that. That must be really difficult. Yes, very difficult. 
Ну, якби все було б нормально, по суті, це дуже важко. я не знаю, якщо чесно. I have no idea when I will see my brother because when the war started my mom just took me. But she was not able to take him because he's an adult. So he just had to stay there. Men of military age aren't allowed to leave Ukraine. And so little kids struggle to understand why their father or their big brother isn't around. Ina Demchenko is the mother of a 9-year-old boy whose father is still in Kyiv. Oh, of course, I'm trying to create some stories because uh, he doesn't need uh, truth. But uh, I'll say tomorrow, in a few weeks, in a month, everything will be okay. And then we'll, you'll see your dad and you'll see your grannies and you'll see every, everybody, your friends. And for some time, of course, it helped. The longer he stays, uh, the, the less he thinks about uh, the situation. Is it helpful for him to talk to his dad, or does that just remind him of the distance and the separation? It depends, because sometimes, of course, he, he plays and he forgets about everything. He uh, contacts, uh, contacts his father uh, and just uh, telling him about uh, his day. Uh, but uh, in a few hours, uh, when he goes to bed, of course, he remembers that uh, a few months ago he stayed with him and slept with him and uh, spent time with him. I was here two months ago and saw how welcoming Polish people were. And I wondered before I came back this time whether people would have started to lose patience. No, they don't lose. I really, I'm really surprised, but they don't. They really help even now, even I think, uh, I don't know for how long it will uh, continue, yeah, but, but I'm impressed. It doesn't seem like anybody is losing patience, but you can see the strain. Eva Dujinska is an English teacher at the Polish public school. It's a really big, big challenge, and they were not prepared for this. She says her classes are not too different since she always conducts them in English, but some of her colleagues who teach in Polish are struggling. It was like the when the pandemic started. We needed to, you know, go through that new era of edu online education, and we did it well. But it took some time for us to uh, to learn how it functions, everything. And now it's the same. I mean, nobody uh, predicted that. Nobody told us that it's going to be like that. Nobody asked them if they want to do it. I mean, it's kind of like we were maybe not forced. It's not a good word, but uh, we don't have much choice. All across Poland, kids, parents, and teachers are trying to adapt, struggling to stay flexible without knowing how long they'll have to keep this up. At the all-Ukrainian school, kids from California sent homemade cards to the refugee students. They hang on a string, and kids open them to see what's inside. 
there are rainbows, hearts, and one with a Ukrainian flag on the front and a short story written inside in a child's uneven scrawl. Once upon a time, there was a man, and that man went to a country and said, this country you live in is actually my country, and you will have to live with my rules. And what the people that live there said, no, we are brave, we believe in ourselves, and we are strong. But the man still wanted the country, and he tried to go to war, but then the people that lived there said, no, we are independent, we support each other, we are strong. And who won? Well, you'll have to figure that out by yourself. Tomorrow on the program, we'll talk to three Polish young adults about how this war has changed their generation. Those five days were the most intense uh, days in my life. After that, when I came back to Warsaw, I needed to reevaluate everything that I do in my life, actually. I have a corporate job, so now I just want to quit my job. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR online at WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, the mass shooting at a Buffalo, New York supermarket on Saturday that's left neighbors scrambling to find food. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhill Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhillFramers.com and Zoo New England with Zootopia June 4th, a gala supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos to inspire caring and action for wildlife. More at zoonewengland.org. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at wbur.org cars. In business news, Cambridge-based Agios Pharmaceuticals is cutting up to 50 jobs. It's part of a move to double down on research on drugs in their later stages of development. The company will cut jobs that are focused on exploratory early-stage research. Agios says the reorganization will save 40 to $50 million a year over three years. On Wall Street today, stocks were mostly lower. The Dow was up 26 points at 32,223. But the Nasdaq fell 142 points, more than 1%, to 11,662. And the S&P 500 dropped 15 points to end the day at 4,008. Marketplace will have all the day's business news at 6.30. Right now, it's 6.19. WBUR supporters include Building Restoration Services, hiring architects, engineers, and estimators to solve complex building envelope problems. BuildingRestorationServices.com. In the forecast, partly to mostly cloudy this evening with strong thunderstorms moving through over the next few hours. Overnight lows down in the upper 50s. Should be all sunshine tomorrow. Highs in the mid-70s. Right now, 76 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Emily Fang. 
Saturday's mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, happened at not just any grocery store. The Topps Market on the city's east side was a store Black residents had fought for years to get built. But it's now closed while investigators process the crime scene. NPR's Adrian Florido reports on what this means. Hours after Saturday's shooting, a reporter asked New York Governor Kathy Hochul where people who shopped at the Tops were going to get their groceries now. There's families that are still finding out that their loved one is not coming home to dinner tonight. People can get their groceries tomorrow. People who know the city's east side said it seemed the governor didn't realize the store's temporary closure was more than a minor inconvenience. We don't have much over here. You know, we don't have markets on every corner. You know what I'm saying? We have people that don't have cars. Therese Smith and her mother are longtime Topps customers. Her mom shops there every Saturday. Every Saturday. So when she learned of the shooting, Smith's first concern was, was her mom okay? Then it was figuring out how to rework her schedule to get her mother food until the store reopens. It's not going to be easy. We're worrying about food and we're worrying about if we're safe getting the food. The Topps Market on Jefferson Avenue is in the heart of Buffalo's Black East Side, and it's the only grocery store people who live here can walk to. I just said, oh my God, that's the only Tops we have in the community. Della Miller is a food activist who helped convince Topps executives to build the store almost 20 years ago. Before then, she used to set up a produce stand nearby. Cases of greens and tomatoes and peppers, and we would actually sell them on the street. That was how desperate we were to get fresh produce. When the Tops opened in 2003, people were thrilled. You know, we have a Tops, we have a Tops. They were so happy, you know what I mean? Because that was extra dollars in their pocket. Not having to pay for transportation or getting on the bus. The store became an important hub, a place to meet for a fried fish dinner or to pick up a prescription. There's a bank inside. The weekend's racist attack did not only cut short 10 lives, it forced the community to answer a question that most richer, wider neighborhoods would never face after a similar attack. Now how do we eat? When there aren't food resources, how do people adapt? And what are the social networks and relationships that help them survive in times of crises? Samina Raja is a Buffalo urban planner, food researcher, and activist. In the last two days, it's those social networks, she said, that have been getting people through. People have mobilized. We have a farmer on the east side who's a black farmer uh, trying to figure out when she's going to do deliveries. Another person is trying to figure out where there will be cold storage. They have not slept. Tops is shuttling customers without cars to other stores. Ride-hailing companies are helping, too. So are food banks. No community should have to scramble to find food like this, Raja says. But this, too, is what racism looks like. The community recognizes that there isn't going to be a response, and that's been the case for too long. They're not going to sit around and figure out who's going to come and bring food to them. Topps executives have promised the store on Jefferson Avenue will reopen. Jalen Jones, who was standing next to the crime scene tape around the parking lot, said he's glad about that. If you black and you grew up in around this neighborhood, you know what this Tops means to you. But shopping there, he said, won't ever be the same. He took that from us. He took that from us. It'll be a place to buy food because there is no other place. Because you have to. Not because you want to. Adrian Florido, NPR News, Buffalo, New York. 
Access to abortion is protected in the state of Maine, even if the U.S. Supreme Court strikes down Roe v. Wade. But Republicans, including former GOP Governor Paul LePage, are running strong campaigns trying to reclaim control of state government, an outcome that could put Maine's abortion protections at risk. The question is whether Democrats and abortion rights advocates can match Republican enthusiasm this November. Steve Mistler from Maine Public Radio reports. Demonstrations about the seemingly imminent demise of Roe versus Wade have intensified here ever since a draft of the court's opinion was publicized. At a recent protest in Portland, Maine, resident Heather Jamison worried the next generation might not have access to a procedure that has been legal for nearly 50 years. I'm worried for my daughters, I'm worried for their friends, I'm worried for my grandchildren. Banning abortion does not stop abortion. It only creates unsafe abortions. And abortion rights supporters have good cause for concern, says Nicole Clegg of Planned Parenthood of Northern New England. People are going to be harmed by what could potentially be happening here. Even though Maine has a 28-year-old law signed by a Republican governor that protects access to abortions, no matter what the Supreme Court decides, Clegg warned that it too could be overturned if an anti-abortion governor and legislature ascends to power in November. They're laws. They are subject to repeal. Elections matter. I pledge to the people of Maine, so long as I'm governor, access to abortion care will be safe and legal in Maine, just as it is now. We will not go backwards. Governor Janet Mills has positioned herself as a champion of abortion rights, like many Democratic legislative candidates facing elections this year. It might boost her re-election chances made uncertain by significant headwinds, including President Biden's low approval rating, voter concerns over inflation, and an enthusiasm gap with a motivated Republican base. Maine Republicans are also hoping the return of former Governor Paula Page, a conservative firebrand often described as a Donald Trump prototype, will energize support for its entire ticket of candidates. Here's LePage at the state convention last month. The choice in November is very clear. I stand for faith, freedom, and trusting the Maine people. LePage's campaign declined a request for an interview, but he recently released a statement reaffirming his, quote, proven history of supporting life, end quote. It also left the door open to changing Maine's abortion laws without specifically saying how. I think I can safely say he, we have obviously seen him as an ally on life and issues like that. Mike McClellan is a former Republican legislator who now works for the Christian Civic League of Maine, a group that is staunchly anti-abortion and influential in the Republican Party here. Our look is to the day that there's just no abortions at all in Maine, that they're not needed. Maine is one of the most secular states in the country, but the religious right here punches above its weight in numbers, with pew-to-polls activism and turnout. McClellan says anti-abortion candidates are winning elections, and as a result, Republican legislators are more unified in restricting abortion access than they were just a few years ago. And he anticipates a wide slate of anti-abortion bills if the GOP wins control of state government. All the polls suggest that even people that support abortion want limits to it. So far, Republican candidates here seem poised to rely on voters' complex abortion views and their own vague plans in a post-Roe world to ride out the backlash. Meanwhile, Democrats like Governor Mills are framing access to the procedure as fundamental to a woman's right to self-determination.
this draft opinion declares that there's basically no right of privacy in the U.S. Constitution. That's extraordinary and extreme. It's an extremist view and it shouldn't be tolerated. And I won't tolerate it at the state level. Whether those concerns resonate with voters and help Mills win re-election this year is unclear. A recent poll taken before the release of the draft opinion showed her in a statistical dead heat with LePage. For NPR News, I'm Steve Missler in Augusta, Maine. This is NPR News. Join Anita Hill and Nina Totenberg at WBUR's gala. Tickets at WBUR.org slash gala. Thanks to sponsor Molly Shannon. This is WBUR. Coming up next on Marketplace, how the White House is trying to address the lack of starter homes on the market right now. In the forecast, it'll be partly to mostly cloudy this afternoon and overnight. Strong thunderstorms, lows in the upper 50s. Right now, 75 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Sawyer Free Library 2025 Foundation. Transforming Gloucester and the North Shore with the renovation and expansion of Cape Ann's oldest public library a philanthropic mission to elevate a lifeline of services for all people. Gloucester's new net zero hub of equity, connection, and advancement. Learn more at SawyerFree2025.org. And WeNeedAVacation.com, specializing in vacation rentals for the Cape and Islands, where vacationers book directly with homeowners. WeNeedAVacation.com.